This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, and thank you for being here. Um, I, am, I feel very pleased and happy to see your faces out there. Um, I am Mary Lou Hill, um, and Paul's actually going to introduce me in a second, but I'm going to introduce him first. Um, we are here to celebrate our book on Thomas Carlyle, so I'm first going to introduce my, my co-editor, uh, Dr. Paul Carey, who is a visiting fellow at Cambridge University and also uh, an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University, and I've had the great pleasure of working with him on several projects now. Um, this, this book is the culmination of a conference that he and I ran here at, in 2007 on Thomas Carlyle. Many of you were actually um, kind enough to help us out and be session chairs and, and uh, be present for it. Um, and now we are also co-editors of an edition of Carlyle's German essays, and so that's on its way. But we have just, we feel like we have, have brought to fruition this wonderful volume of essays. So should I hand it to you to make a quick introduction and then, and then we'll talk, so. And the, uh, the volume that she's speaking of, the German essays, we just have up here. The University of California Press was very good and has decided to bring out an edition of critical essays. So we're working on that together. We've had a very fruitful collaboration over the last several years, and I've been deeply grateful to Mary Lou for her support in various endeavors, which has um, also included her being over at Cambridge uh, last, last year, the year before last, where we continued the collaboration. We look forward to being next year at the University of Edinburgh, where the, a major international Carlisle Studies Conference will go on and we'll talk about some of our results on the University of California Press Edition. Um, I saw some that, uh, that she's much appreciated here at Villanova. We have in the back of our book our contributors and, of course, a brief biographical essay of, of where each of us is from and, and what our, our backgrounds are. Here, she, here, here she's listed as assistant director, but I saw from her position in the office here at Villanova that she's now the director of the Core Humanities Program and also graduate studies and liberal studies. Graduate, graduate liberal studies. Um, her, her work, of course, is directly in line with the Victorian period, mothering modernity, feminism, modernism, and the maternal muse. Uh, she first came to my attention when I read, when I heard her speak in Philadelphia at a conference on British studies, and then for another book project that I was working on, asked her to contribute an essay. She did a uh, superior essay, and I've just seen one after another, including the one inside of this book. So, do you want to start with that? So we're going to be going back and forth, um, you know, sharing sharing the podium here. But I did want to say a few words just about who is Thomas Carlyle? Why is he important? Why have we written this book? Why is his face looming at us out of that poster? Um, and everyone looks, it's a beautiful poster. And I want to thank the folks here at Falvey for just a spectacularly beautiful poster. Um, but he's one of those people who, if you've heard of him, I'm betting you haven't read him. Um, and there's a good chance maybe you've never heard of him. And so I, I, it is important, we always tell our students, answer the who cares question. Well, I guess we have to answer that too. Um, so part of what I wanted to say a few words about is, is why should we care about Thomas Carlyle? Um, and the first reason we should care as since I'm a Victorianist, I'll, I'll start with this, is that in his own time period, I would, I would 
go so far to say as he is, if not the most important voice, he was certainly one of the top three most important voices of the 19th century to his own contemporaries. People knew that he, he was saying something that was very new and he was making them really rethink their values, their beliefs. Um, if we just, even just look at the people, a, a short list of the people who visited his home in Cheney Row um, in, in London, just here's the short list. John Ruskin, Charles Dickens, George Henry Lewis, William Morris, John Stuart Mill, uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Robert Browning, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Lee Hunt, Erasmus and Charles Darwin, Julia Margaret Cameron, William Makepeace Thackeray, Edward Fitzgerald, John Forster, James Froude, Margaret Fuller, James Stephen, along with his sons, James Fitzjames, and Leslie Stephen, father of Virginia Woolf, and the list goes on and on and on. If nothing else, um, you could do, you could, uh, you, a good way of learning about the Victorian era would be just to look through the Carlyle letters to see all the people he wrote with and corresponded with. Um, but it's also, it's not just who was drinking tea with him, um, as interesting as that is. It's also who was reading him, who was, who, who was changing the way they thought because of him. And this week I have the great pleasure of teaching a Christmas carol to my students in my honors um, Victorian lit class. And I just find myself over and over and over saying you can't understand Dickens without understanding the impact that Carlyle's social theory had on Dickens. You don't have Dickens without Carlyle. You don't have John Ruskin without Carlyle. You don't even have John Stuart Mill without Carlyle, who in terms of a philosophical thinker. So thinking about the intersections, Carlyle, if we, if we take Carlyle out of the history, it's like a, like a black hole where everything is is affected by it, but it's you know so it's an invisible force that's affecting it. But I think we need to actually look at him and not just look at his how his how he is affecting things. Um, he is the quintessential Victorian face, and that's why again I love our poster there. He's he's there's something melancholy, but there's also something he can be satirical, he can be humorous, he can be gloomy, he can be um, profound, he can be witty. There's some that he's cranky, curmudgeonly, you name it, he he can do it. Um, and all these things now I think deserve reappraising, which is where we come in um, with our volume. So. At that, no, now but I'll pass it over to you to start with some, some of the places where we believe we need to reappraise and to challenge you. And actually, I'll, I'll end by saying one thing. Um, he's largely fallen out of the curriculum, but especially for those of us teaching ACS, he's a lot of fun to teach and to bring him back as, as someone to read with our students. And I'll say more about exactly the text I think we can teach with him, but I'll pass it first to Paul. She mentioned uh, those who have read Thomas Carlyle. It's not so well known that amongst those who read him are, of course, Marx and Engels. He is cited in an essay on estranged labor, so a very early essay. What are they looking at? They're looking at Carlyle on work, 
Now, of course, work has many connotations in the Victorian period, the workhouses that you see criticized in Dickens's novels. You also see the idea that, that the self-made man, somebody who, who works very hard, can lift himself up by his own bootstraps and bring himself into some kind of economic or social prominence. Carlyle's take, though, is slightly different. Carlyle would look at work in, in many other ways, aside from those that were maybe prominent, or at least that we accept as prominent during the Victorian period. So, for example, he says in looking at the heroes of the modern day, that maybe instead of building massive statues to people who are capitalist industrialists, robber, robber baron types, he said perhaps we should build a shaft to sink their images into the shaft. Why hold them up as the great heroes? In fact, on the, on the dust jacket, in a section that Mary Lou wrote, I think it's uh, very well put here, where she says, readers can now rediscover a Carlyle who challenges an increasingly self-absorbed culture, rails against the excesses of capitalist greed, teaches captains of industry to embrace a new kind of leadership, restores a meaningful connection to the past, and draws our gaze to genuine heroism. So a redefinition of heroism, not just the person who goes out, makes uh, a fortune, and, and does it on the backs of, as Mary Lou points out in her own essay, on the Irish widow, for example, who's struggling away and starving during the famine, or in other areas. Did he have blind spots sometimes? Of course. He might not have made the connection sometimes in a too easy uh, association with labor and rights when it came to slavery. And that's a topic that's very much discussed with Carlyle. In other areas, though, and I think Marx and Engels picked up on this, he understood that you couldn't estrange labor. I was taught a little bit about this. We just had, um, last year at Brigham Young University, we had the, the great honor of hosting Archbishop George, wh whom I'm sure you, you will all know. And he taught the BYU and the LDS, the Mormon community, about the principle of subsidiarity thought this was very important. Too easily does Catholic social thought sometimes collapse into the rhetoric of left and right. And this was highly illuminating to hear at Brigham Young University and to hear Archbishop George talk about this. I should say as an aside, especially with Sandy from the Core Humanities Program and, and the ACL, ACS uh, here in the audience, we're just, uh, the university, Brigham Young University, is now changing conferences, leaving the Mountain West Conference, getting out of Dodge while TCU is blowing up everybody in the conference, and joining the, what some people call the Catholic Conference, the West Coast Conference, where I think basketball reigns supreme with Gonzaga. So maybe we'll see a little bit more of uh, Villanova in that way. Certainly we'll see a little bit more of Notre Dame as a football independent. I wanted to also add that, that when Carlyle talks about work, he makes the connection. It's not just about labor. So when Marx and Engels pick up on him on work, talk about a strange labor, they seem to miss another point. Carlyle sees labor, a person's work, and seems to touch on the idea of vocation, the voca, that which calls us, that labor is life, he calls it, and that a person doing work is in touch with the inmost part of a reason, or one reason, why he or she is called to life. So this connection that he makes, almost touching on the transcendent. He also looks at work, gives a metaphor of work, with the mountains. And this, of course, is something that, uh, that those of us who live in the mountains understand. He says, without the rain that falls on the mountains and the tributaries that go from the mountains into the valleys, those valleys could not flourish. 
And he seems to suggest that labor in some way, our life's work, no matter what that work is, wherever, whatever our station in life is, that work in and of itself fertilizes, waters, gives life to the valleys of our life, that we need to be able to work, to express ourselves through work. So it's not just maybe in dumping robber barons into a shaft, but also in elevating all forms of work and calling it honorable. I think that's something that he's been overlooked on and could possibly be reconnected to the general political discourse. In fact, the political discourse is one of the things that we wanted to bring out in this volume. With that, perhaps Mary Lou? In terms of the political discourse, he's, he's extraordinary in that he rejects democracy. Um, and, and we are so used to thinking democracy reigns supreme, it's shocking even to run into someone who is just not swayed by it. But it's easy to forget that a lot of very smart people in the 19th century were not swayed by it, especially in England. Uh, in America, we have a very different viewpoint towards it. Um, but Carlyle wasn't willing to concede that that was the best way to find a leader. And one of the critical questions, especially in a work like Past and Present, um, where he is looking at his own society and he's asking the critical question of who shall lead us? Where do we turn to find our rulers? And how do we get the best ruler possible? He's raising a lively question that certainly in, you know, in our volatile political um, landscape even today, this, it, it comes up again and again. How do we get the best people? How do we find them? And if it's not democracy, how? In my essay in here, I had a, a lot of fun exploring his relation to Edmund Burke and how Burke stands as a conservative uh, of the 18th century who is very much concerned with a hereditary mon monarchy. That's how you get stability in a, in a society, is to have a monarchy that's safely hereditary and you can rest secure that things will continue in a way that you can now, you can work at peace, you can prosper without having to worry. Um, and Carlyle comes out of that, but then he also asks the, the, the flip side of that question, well, what do you do when you get a bad king? Well, you get the French Revolution, and that's another one of his critically um, major works, the French Revolution, which remains an astounding history of that time period. So if we're looking at these two pieces, where you have, on the one hand, maybe a hereditary monarchy is problematic because eventually you end up with the, the end of the gene pool. And on the other hand, democracy, who are you voting in? You're voting in maybe a person who you admire because they got a lot of money, or because they're handsome, or all the various reasons that people go to the polls. Um, so if these are both problems, how do we find the right people? And that's what I explore in my essay, but I also, I, of several of the essays in here, try to look at what kind of political thinker he is. And the answer, at least for Carlyle, is, is a, he looks to a, what I would say is a startling place, except it makes perfectly good sense. In the middle of the 19th century, he says, well, look at the people and the men. I mean, to be fair, he is never a feminist. So look at the men who are already leading people. Not kings, because frankly, we don't have a lot of good of kings at that point. He never talks about Victoria, interestingly enough. Um, but he says, look, at, look over here at industry. 
look at our, our, our owners, the people who own the mills, the people that own the factories. These guys know how to pull men together and to get them to work. And that's a start. If you know how to be in community and working together, that's a really good start to build a community. Except the problem there is that the owners all want to make lots of money. They're all about the profit margin. And so how do we deal with that? And so he has this wonderful invitation to what he calls the captains of industry. To not think just about money, but to think about what's the community they build as owners, as CEOs. And what's extraordinary to me today, when I teach this with my students in ACS, invariably I got my business students sitting there who all of a sudden want to look up and say, wow, we were just reading about this with best business practices, that this is the way you ought to do it. You need to inculcate love and loyalty and caring about your workers. You need to make a good environment to work in. These are all best business practices. I'm like, yeah, well, Carlisle's the first one to think of it in an era when you know, the owners were all about essentially gouging their workers for every last drop of blood they could get out of them. Carlisle's the first to say, no, you can't treat them like that. And that's where Marx and Engels, I'm glad you mentioned that Marx and Engels are both reading Carlisle. You wouldn't have the Communist Manifesto without Carlisle. And as a matter of fact, when Engels, he actually does a book review of past and present, and he makes a point of, you know, commending Carlyle, but he says, but you know, he doesn't go, quite go far enough, which, okay, that's all right. Um, although Carlyle's no socialist. He's a communist, he's not communist, uh, he's uh, a conservative, except he's a radical conservative. Um, he's, at the minute you think you've got a handle on him, you don't. He kind of slithers away, and he, he gives you the flip side as well. And that's what, to me, is so fun about reading Carlyle. Um, he also is amazingly modern in how he thinks about history, and how he thinks about our relation to not just the past, but how we capture the past. Uh, and one of the best essays, I think, and I, I'm not just being nice to you, Paul, but one of the best essays in here is Paul's essay on the writing of history and how Carlyle approaches historiography uh, in a way that's surprisingly modern. That's where, where Carlyle is aware that there's a critical disconnect between how things happen and how we somehow try to write about them. That you cannot catch the simultaneity that is happening in the event, and you have to put it instead into some sort of narrative. And he knows that there's a critical disjuncture that it's, it's both challenging for the writer in exciting ways, but also it calls into question the entire historical project. And for a man who calls himself a historian to be making that claim is rather startling in itself. So maybe, Paul, would you want to say a few words about your essay? Keep switching back. Before I, I talk about Carlisle and history, one thing that just struck me, it hasn't ever struck me before, as I looked up at Mary Lou, I glanced over her shoulder and saw the overhead and then I thought, right, we need to get up St. Joe's University, uh, the Carlisle Studies Annual, maybe up. And, and then it struck me, the editor-in-chief of the Strauss volumes for University of California Press is at Notre Dame. Mary Lou, of course, is at Villanova. And the chief editor of Carlisle Studies is at St. Joe's, three Catholic institutions. And I, I've never made the connection before that, that is there something particular about Carlisle that might be of interest to Catholic readers, a Catholic audience. I, I don't know. It just literally, as I said, was a perhaps the social teaching side. 
Um, and, and as I said, we were just deeply impressed by that. In fact, I, if you don't mind me going on in praise of um, His Holiness, uh, the Holy Father, uh, Benedict XVI, he uh, has, has, of course, just been um, very, very gracious in allowing a, a Mormon temple to be built in Rome. And, and we're just so thrilled that that's going to be the case and look forward to cooperating socially, particularly here in the United States, on other issues that continue to arise in the United States and to continue to learn from from Catholics. I, I think that uh, there can be a tremendous uh, learning, especially in the areas of ethics, philosophy, and natural law, areas that perhaps Catholics shouldn't be so shy about in, in claiming their own identity. And of course, I'm delighted that here at Villanova, there's an effort, I know it's hard and I know it's complicated, for an Augustinian renewal and to understand your own contributions to academics, perhaps with the thought that Augustinianism is, is important and Catholic teaching important. But Carlyle in history, he claims he is a historian. And Lowell Fry uh, at Hampton Sydney College, one of the contributors here, he says it's almost as if whenever Carlyle makes an assertion, he redoubles, triples. He goes into hyperbole to prove the assertion, only to then take it away. So Mary Lou says he understands the very problems of history. One could claim, and, and this is what is normally taught under the philosophy of history, what are the philosophical problems of, of causality, intentionality, of influence? How do you prove these things historically? Carlyle already knows. He writes essays in the 19th century that shows an awareness for these philosophical problems. And yet, despite the awareness of the philosophical problems, he'll write large, multi-volume works on Friedrich the Great, the French Revolution, Oliver Cromwell. Part of the reason why Carlyle isn't to be found in the classroom is that our classrooms don't often allow for multi-volume works. We're now in the period, of course, of using readers, excerpts of many works to try to cover bases. Very difficult to do when you have a seven or eight volume piece. What do you extract from it? The same thing with the French Revolution. And yet, he doesn't just produce these histories to say, I have a disconnect. Here are the histories that I write, and here's my understanding of theory and why the philosophy of history is complicated. Instead, he sometimes will use the philosophy of history inside of the very histories themselves. So for example, Simon Schama of Cambridge, now at Columbia University, he writes that, that he was inspired by the uh, French Revolution in his own groundbreaking work on the French Revolution. What is this? It's the switching of voice. Carlyle knew about narrative. He knew that there often, in the 19th century particularly, is a master narrative voice that guides the reader, like a 19th century novel would have a narrator. He questions this, and he shifts voice in his histories. He gives a voice to, for example, the crowds or the masses. As you know, Le Bon in the 19th and early 20th century was already speculating about the crowd or masses as a separate entity, one that social thought and sociological theory had to take into account. Carlyle does this historiographically. Inside of the uh, past and present that Mary Lou referenced, you have multiple voices. He takes a manuscript of a period, Jocelyn of Breakland in the medieval period, of a particular monastery, a very, very powerful one in England, just outside of Cambridge, in fact, a, a few miles outside of Cambridge, Edmund St. Berry, or Berry St. Edmunds. And he wonders, as he looks at Jocelyn inside of his past and present, what would Jocelyn say? What would Jocelyn do? And so in some ways, he restates the narrative using the primary source, and then continues the narrative. And he begins to address Jocelyn 
as well as Abbot Samson and others. And so you see him using techniques that are now used by historians such as Yale's Jonathan Spence. Now, Carlyle wasn't the only one to think about these things. Friedrich Schiller at the University of Jena in the 18th century, very late 18th century, already speculated that you had to fill in the holes of history. What happens if there are simply not enough historical records to create a narrative? What do you do? Jonathan Spence and other historians today revisit a what some had considered repudiated theory of the 19th century upheld by Wilhelm Diltai, empathy. Can you know enough as a historian to know about a period and empathize? Now, 19th century historians would do this all the time. Carlyle will give you a speech in Cromwell, and you'll be hard-pressed to find what primary source contains this speech. Did he just make it up? But it comes from the notion that you could know divinatory criticism, the German romantics would call it. You could know what was going to be said. Now, of course, our modern historians don't do that. They still are led primarily by the original sources, the, as Ranka would put it, Quellen, the actual sources themselves, ad fontes. But where sources are lacking, you could make awfully good guesses, informed hypotheses. So Carlo Ginzburg, uh, Simon Schama himself in Dead Certainties, and, and others, Craig Harleen in some of his work, begin to do this, and yet it's not known or very much forgotten that Carlyle had already understood these principles and had already applied those techniques. Carlyle also called history an innumerable set of biographies. So he understood that biography would be crucial to history. After the war, the Second World War, biography became very low on the priorities. You had the Annal School in France, the attempt to create world or global scale history. What do we find now, though? Look on the history shelves. Again, you see the resurgence of biography. Historians now are returning to biography. Again, it's, it's in a more, they would, I think, argue, sophisticated form, perhaps, the 19th century, but it's not the complete doing down of biography that had been a phase in history. You now allow that actors, that actual people, may create change, and it's not just a set of disembodied forces, economic forces, political forces, that actual individuals do this. Again, Carlyle isolated this as one of the primary reasons to complete and to do history. As you know, there are different senses of history. We have in the audience uh, uh, a scholar and a colleague, Michael Tomko. Uh, I just read recently, uh, about a year ago, or, or a little bit more, and have reread his essay on the English Catholic sense of history. And in it, he argues that there is a Catholic sense of history. This was brought home to me by a scholar out of Franciscan University, Steubenville. He visited Cambridge, and we walked around. And do you know how sometimes you're in a, you're in a region, and then when somebody points something out to you about a particular region or piece of architecture, the whole meaning of the place changes. This scholar from Steubenville was walking, and we were walking past some of the great uh, chapels of Cambridge, and he pointed out to me that as a Catholic, this was a little difficult sometimes, because these had once been inhabited by and built by Catholics. And suddenly it changed my way of understanding Cambridge and English history, because the places themselves had changed, were inhabited by or possessed by or haunted by 
former spirits. I think Tolkien gives us a sense of this in Weathertop, when the, in the, uh, the fellowship is on Weathertop, and they reflect on the many different peoples that had passed by this particular place. Michael Tomko brings that out in his essay. Carlyle does similarly. He says that places are important, and that places, topography, some people call this the topographical turn in history, as you have new places, or I should say older places that are re-inhabited by new people or new civilizations, something of the, perhaps a postmodern term, traces would still be found. The elements would still be there, and you could infuse or, or, or um, uh, draw out, leach out some of those elements. And so in his particular piece, in Past and Present, when looking at Bury St. Edmunds and the ruin of the abbey that was once a glorious, of course, Catholic edifice, he reflects on what does this mean for, for us today, that this had once been a place very different to its use today. And how does it rest with us to see a place that's reoccupied by another kind of animating spirit? So I'll stop there with some of the historiographical elements and maybe Mary Lee, you could address some of the, the final elements that you found uh, for, for putting forward the book. The final elements that really, I think, are guiding principles in this book, um, I think they're all, I, I'm trying to think, I was trying to think of one word that would somehow sum them up, but I think it is, it's a concern for community um, which isn't to say that Carlyle was the most lovable, huggy, warm, warm and fuzzy kind of guy, because he actually wasn't. He was a very solitary man who, it's curious that he is as concerned with community as he is, because he was not much of a communitarian in his own life. But having said that, uh, several of the, several of the, of the uh, essays in here do look at how he tries to um, create communities and resuscitate communities. Uh, we have one that's uh, one essay on the Chartist movement of the 18, uh, 1840s, where you have the workers essentially rising up, uh, and and where Carlyle is really trying to trying to figure out what's the best way for this particular community to intersect with the community that was the owners, etc. And and again, he's not satisfied with the way they're going about it, but he's trying to find well, what's a new way of doing that? Um, it, as I said earlier, in terms of owners and workers in general, he's trying to figure out how to bring people together. We have another essay by um, a wonderful Carlyle scholar. He's been uh, he's he's become now the grandfather. Of of Carlisle studies at this point named Ian Campbell, who's at the University of Edinburgh. And he does a, a really lovely piece about Carlisle and education. And what's what's the way education creates a community of, of not just thinkers, but of kindred spirits. Um, and so Carlisle, it's, it's like he's a profoundly lonely man who is looking for those ways to connect. And if we think even in terms of the damage that capitalism was doing in the mid-19th century. It was one of isolation where people um, who are, it's a willingness to be isolated. In other words, it's not that, it's not that the workers are being isolated by the owners, but that the owners are isolating themselves 
away from the workers. They are keeping them at hand's distance. They don't want to have to see them, touch them, be near them. We even see this, and Carlisle doesn't talk about this, but it's if you ever have a chance to go to the Carlisle house and think about the domestic economies there, as, as people went up the social scale, you would have houses that had front and back staircases, so you wouldn't have to see your servants and things like that. Uh, these oddities are typical of Victorian life, but Carlisle saw these as things that just tear people apart. And that's why even though he himself ends up being very much a fallen away, I don't know if I would even call him Christian by the end of his life. He, he was originally going to go in the ministry and then decided he could not believe that Christ was divine. But he still had a profound sense of the divine, of, of God as this sort of this, this source of all good things and this, it really almost a Hegelian sort of force moving, moving history and, and moving everything towards some sort of endpoint. Um, but he's very drawn to what can be, well, the traces, I guess would be, as, as Paul used that word, the traces of Catholicism. Uh, and that's why for his perfect society, in insofar as any society is perfect, he does look to a monastery in the 12th century, that somehow, somehow they're getting it right. Not because it's intrinsically a perfect form, but when you have the right abbot who loves the people he's working with, but also loves God, this sort of triangulation, that somehow you can make a community that works. And it's curious that he doesn't, he, he, he knows it can't be necessarily resurrected, but he says, we have to look at this. They're, they're doing something right. What can we bring forward again? Um, and so I think if there's, if there's nothing else, I think that's, that's the thing I find myself drawn to in, in Carlisle and intrigued by, uh, especially because of the paradoxes about how he goes about showing these things. Um, but all the good reasons why he's, he is very worthy of investigating and of, and of really of, of wrestling with um, in terms of how he tries to show these ideas. Um, I'm trying to think if I have left. Is this a good point to ask for Q&A or? Have I left something out? I think that's a good point. Okay, so I'm going to open it up for questions. Yeah, Shara. Uh, I have a couple. The short one is it, it sounded like you were starting to talk a little bit more about Carlyle's specific relationship to his own household staff. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering where I'm at. Um, but I also understand that he was really embraced by some or many of the American transcendentalists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious to hear a little more about what specifically was most impressive to them, or most influential. Mm. Those are two great questions. Um, uh, do you want me to tackle those? I've got an idea or two, but please okay. start. Okay, I'll, I'll start and then you can jump in. Uh, I'll say a few words about the domestic economy first. Um, one of the great stories of the 19th century is the relationship of Jane Welsh Carlyle and Thomas Carlyle. And boy, oh boy, what a pair. As um, I forget if it was Tennyson or someone said that it was a good thing that they had married each other instead of marrying other people, because that way only two people were unhappy rather than four people. It kind of gives you a sense. Jane was a wonderful letter writer, acerbic, funny, fu if you want wonderful letters to read through. She is smart, she is sassy, 
but also very brittle and fragile. And the two of them together in the same house, it just it created sparks of all sorts, and but not necessarily romantic sparks. They were they were actually most in love with each other when they were apart, and their letters to each other at those times are quite loving and quite beautiful. But we have the sense that the domestic life was full of oh, just I, I won't say unhappiness. I think they may actually. Um, I can pass this around. This actually kind of, I think, is a, a good indication of how the two of them got along. <laughs> um, but in terms of, they only had one servant. And that was for all their years, even though he was making very good money by the end of, uh, by the end of his life. Um, and if you have a chance to go to Cheney Row and, to, and also to read Jane's letters about the upkeep of this house with one servant and their battles against bedbugs and their battles against cold water and hot water and trying to get things to where they had to be. And just, it's a fascinating look of, at the Victorian home. Virginia Woolf writes a great little essay about great men's homes is what it's called and she talks about the Carlisle house, going to visit the Carlisle house which had just been made into a museum when she was a little girl um, so that's that was the, that's number one about that and there's, there's so much more I could say but it's 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 a it's a book unto itself um, the second I'll, I'll start and then I'll hand it to to uh, to Paul um, but the transcendentalist it's a I I am I've been puzzling out a course possibility of calling us like romantics, transcendentalists, and socialists. Um, but I think, I was also thinking it would be a really neat conference, and this maybe will be our next conference, um, to have Carlisle in America. Because how the Americans pick up Carl, Carlisle and run with him is astounding. Um, and they are intrigued by, I think, the word transcendental. I have to double check this, but as I was rereading Sartor Resartus with my students this past semester, um, I realized I think that's the first place the word transcendental is used in the way the American transcendentalists use I think that's actually where they get the name. Um, and I, but I, can't, I have to verify that, so don't quote me, but I, I think it's where it, it, it comes from. He had made friends with Emerson before he had written his first book, Sartor Resartus. He'd been writing a whole bunch of essays. Emerson had gotten wind of some of the essays, had met him while Emerson was in England, and Emerson's the one who gets him published the first time in book form, and it's published in Boston. The collected essays, which actually we're using as our, one of our uh, texts um, to, to kind of work against, um, with this edition of the German uh, essays, uh, also first comes out in America under, under Emerson's editorial um, guidance. Um, and if you read Thoreau, for example, uh, his style, and no one's done this yet, so any enterprising people out there, um, you know, to read Thoreau is like reading Carlyle. There's that same bombastic kind of style where he just wants to kind of knock you off your chair and upset you and make you argue with him and want to throw books at each other. That's, it's, just, it's very Carlyle-esque. Um, I also would argue that to take us back to the continent, that's what Frederick Nietzsche does too. And Nietzsche technically hates Carlyle. He says how much he hates him. Blah, I don't like Carlyle at all, he says. And yet he sounds just like him in some very interesting areas. So that's a whole other, whole other paper. Um, so let me hand it to you first. So just to go back to your question on transcendentalism, it is, it is Emerson, of course, who uh, the book flops Sartre Resartus in its initial reception in Great Britain, but he makes it popular here. Mm -hmm. Just bear in mind as well that Carlyle's first book really is his uh, biography of Friedrich Schiller. 
So he's reading Schiller. He then, of course, translates Goethe's Wilhelm Meister. So he's steeped in German classicism, Weimar classicism, and German romantics, as, as we both well know, given this edition that's coming out with the University of California. So I think that a part of what motivates him is a part of what motivated them. What do you do in a period when you believe that there is no belief? How do you sustain belief in that period? And a part of Sartre Resartus is about coming to that brink and still saying yes to life, still giving some kind of affirmation to life so as not to slip away into nihilism. So I see that as at least one area where he draws on some of this thinking and it seems to go into Sartre Resartus and be brought to uh, America by the transcendentalists. One interesting um, little uh, connection to our library here, there's um, a group called the Roycrofters, and they were an arts and crafts movement of the late 19th century, but they're very influenced by Carlyle's words about work and the necessity of work, and they kind of connect that then to the art movement of people like William Morris and the Pre-Raphaelites, and you put these two things together and you get communities, utopian communities, that are based on creating beautiful things that are yet useful, and we have a lovely collection of their stuff right here in our special collections. It's, it's kind of obscure now, but a neat little community, and as I was going through for our conference, I was going through for create a special collections um, exhibit, I was going through their stuff and seeing just how often Carlyle turned up in their, in their uh, various writings. So it's just fascinating. It's just the, the intersections, and no one's really done this work to see just all these intersections and how it's happening. So. Other questions? We, um at a, at a school like Villanova, really any university, there's something sort of post-medieval about us. Uh, we're, we're in a community together, and I think we struggle with a lot of the things that it sounds like Carlisle struggles with. We, we are in a sort of community, and yet often we aren't really as connected with each other as, as we would like to be. And we have some sense that it might have to do with, uh, with, with our work, with, uh, with economics, uh, but it's all very complicated and it's hard to sort out. Um, I wonder what you would say that Carlisle would, would have to say that we as a university would be interested in, not just as a subject matter to study, but in order to think about our community together. Um, how would he help us evaluate what kind of community we are and, and maybe to, uh, to have it be more healthy uh, um, in the way that he describes? I, I'll, I'll try. Mm -hmm. Um, I, the first thing that came into my mind as you spoke was don't perform a rhizotomy. Not a lobotomy, don't perform that either, but don't perform a rhizotomy, and I use that in a particular way. Uh, it, again, and I, I don't mean to come across too strongly, but uh, I can't help but admire uh, the Pope. He wrote a book called Without Roots, and in this he speaks of Europe cutting itself off from its roots. Um, Jean Bethke Elstein, in the preface to Pierre Manant's City of Man, speaks about Europe attempting to give birth to itself. So I think Carlyle might, just in this hypothetical counterfactual, advise a rhizotomy is when you cut off your own roots. Remember your roots, where you come from, what this institution stands for. It is, uh, was founded and conceived with a purpose. It's supported by the Catholic Church. Uh, remember the magisterium. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I would think that in a general way, 
Remember your roots. Don't perform a rhizotomy. Don't cut yourself off from your roots. She was talking about uh, Mary Lou, Carlyle, and, and Burke, in a sense, you know, what makes Carlyle appealing? Uh, what is this about conservative thought? He's not really a conservative in traditional political theory. What is it? And it might be the recognition that, that roots matter to some degree. So just as a, as a quick reaction, that's what came to my head. One of the nicest images um, throughout Carlyle's writing is he loves, he loves the image of the tree as a symbol of first past, present, and future, that the past is the roots, the body of the tree is the present, and the leaves that are starting to grow are the future. Um, but what I also love about him is that, and this is where he's a radical conservative, um, is that he also says, you know, the better part of knowing how to conserve is also knowing when to prune and when to get out there with the shears and to trim that tree back. And that's where, when he's writing the French Revolution, he actually uses the idea of the revolution itself, that it's, it's not that it's necessarily a radical thing, it's nature kind of coming around to its, um, or it's a, it's a natural pruning of this kingship that was this, you know, letting itself just kind of grow in, in wrong ways. Um, so he, his, his images are kind of neat. I, was just, I don't know if that actually answers what you were saying, but it is kind of neat images to go with that he's, um, makes, it makes you really think about what does it mean to be conservative, and especially when you line them up with Burke and to see how the two of them are sitting as a continuum with each other, but then also in some ways a counter distinction to modern conservatism. And so that's that what's happened there is also a, a whole other a whole other story. But anyway. Other other questions? Yeah, John. When uh, when we think of the political uh, differences between the parties uh, in England in the Victorian period, especially the early part, um, we think of the liberals as being associated with uh, with commerce and industry, uh, and we think of the, the Tories uh, more associated with the land, uh, with the landed gentry, uh, agriculture, uh, and and this kind of uh, this may may be stereotypical, but I think there's some truth to it. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering whether, if we want to identify uh, Carlyle with kind of a uh, when he's conservative, um, it is, it would, in what way would he be associated, or yes or no, um, with with that kind of impression of Toryism mm -hmm. as being agricultural, uh, you know, more more um, sympathetic with with labor in, in an old older sense rather than the social sense. Um, and um, or, as opposed to um, you know, his relationship with, with liberal mm -hmm. commercial interests, which obviously is critical of. Mm -hmm. So what, what is that, what, 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 in what way is he related or, or sympathetic to perhaps an older image of, of Toryism um, as it manifests itself? That's exactly where Carlyle is he, he embodies all of those elements in a very peculiar and innovative way um, in that he is, he is sympathetic, and that's where he and Burke line up, he's sympathetic to the continuity of tradition. He really feels strongly about tradition, and tradition as it is embedded 
in in the land in in you know rural hamlets and things of that sort but he's also not he's not really on the side of the aristocracy uh, he actually has some scathing words about the aristocracy, mostly because he sees them as not working. If they were a working aristocracy who actually say, gee, our job is to rule and our job is to lead and to guide, then we should do that. Then he would be okay with it. But the fact that they have, they have essentially uh, abdicated all, all responsibilities. So, so, yeah, but so, so just looking at that, the land, yes. Aristocracy, mm, no, not as keen on that. Workers, yes, really good, except they ought to know their place. And that's where he is very much a man of his time. He is not, and that's what, as I was, as my students and I were talking about, the wonderful ending of A Christmas Carol, and they're Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, and they're both enjoying a glass of smoking bishop, which is a, one of those wonderful, you know, drinks punch or something. And, and I make a point to them, I say, well, what's changed for Bob? And they say, oh, well, he got a raise. He's not Scrooge's equal at the end. And he's not going to be. He's not going to be. Maybe eventually, maybe he'll work his way up. But right there, he is not his equal. And it's part of knowing your place. But once you know your place, and if I know my place and I'm an owner, and you know your place and you're a worker, and then we agree that there are ways we support each other that's not just about the money. It's not just about cash payment, but that there's something else that binds us together. So it really, you have, for, for Carlisle, that's why I mentioned about the monastery, you have to look back to the Middle Ages um, and feudalism. I mean, it's as, it's as basic as that, uh, which is where, when, even with the Communist Manifesto, when Marx and Engels have this very lyrical passage about there is a sort of beauty to this past system of feudalism that even if it wasn't perfect, at least there was some sort of love, there was something that bound these people together. And that's what Carlyle, that's his fantasy. Um, although, oddly enough, he talks a lot about desiring someone, a hero, that he can bow his head to. He wants to get down his knees before somebody but there really isn't anyone that is good enough, uh, except for dead people, and that's, you know, so he'll, he'll, he'll say that about Cromwell or someone, but he, not in the present. And so that's where he's a real contradiction. He speaks of community, he speaks of history, but he himself is kind of on the outs from that. Um, he puts down aristocracy, but one of his best friends is uh, a very lovely aristocratic lady who is kind of like a patron and that type of stuff to him. Um, he is a, a bundle of contradictions, but he's also, I think, where he's innovative is that he makes us think hard about what does it mean to be conservative or liberal in the 19th century. Um, and I think in that way, it also, I think, challenges us today, too. These terms are not as simple as they, as they appear. Um, and if you can kind of slice them in different ways, you can have different alignments. Uh, and I think that's what he does best. He shakes it up so you can't say, oh, I'm, I'm a conservative. Um, yeah. like Marx, mm -hmm. who um, championed the rights and the future of workers, mm -hmm. however ill-fated, uh, while relying on the money of capitalists. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he's a poor boy who marries a rich girl. 
Um, he grow, his parents are dirt poor farmers up in Scotland. Um, lots of kids. Little Thomas was the, the, the sickly one, so he didn't have to work out in the fields. Um, he was the smart one, so he got sent to university. He loathed his experience at the university. Curiously enough, because he ends up becoming rector there many, many years later as a sort of honorary appointment. But at the time, he really was not keen on how the university was set up. Uh, and he saw it as a system of have and have nots. And there were the rich boys and the poor boys. And Thomas knew where he fit in there. Um, he falls in love with a rich girl, Jane Welsh, and, or at least rich in their little town in Scotland. Um, and she's very beautiful and has money, and she's an heiress, the whole bit. Um, and so he marries into a better society. I don't think his, her mother ever thought well of him. Um, her father, I believe, was already dead at that point. So he's, he has a very tangled feeling. And I think it, it shows in the person he really values the most is Cromwell. He loves Cromwell as a hero. And... I mean, and Cromwell, to be fair, is of, you know, noble, noble birth, but there's something about Cromwell that just kind of wants to pull down. He's an iconoclast, and he wants to pull down these, these um, old aristocracies in a lot of ways, including the kingship. And I think that's why Carlyle is drawn to him. He wants, so he wants someone who's both noble, but also not noble in the traditional ways. And it's an odd figure that he always returns to him as that sort of hero. Maybe, um, maybe one way to show how that's embodied in his own body. When he passes away, he has the option to be buried in Westminster with all of the greats, of course, of, of England. He declines that and decides instead to have his body conveyed back to his small hamlet of Echelfechen and, and be buried there. So he, in a sense, his own body represents the shift of wanting to be a part of Cheney Row and literary intellectual culture in London, but in the end, opting to go back home to those original roots and, and place his body there and, and, in a sense, be a part of, of Scottish soil. And he's not next to Jane. She's married <laughs> elsewhere. I'm not married, but buried elsewhere. <laughs> so, Mike, you had your hand up, I think? Or? Well, yeah, I, I, I had one question that kind of arose from how, how both of you were talking about Carlisle. And I was interested in if there's a kind of state of the question that you have after editing this book, which is, on the one hand, recognizing Carlyle as an important historical force uh, and influence, um, and studying him as a kind of historical phenomenon. But on the other hand, his voice is such a sagacious voice, his kind of preacherly tone, where he's kind of calling on you to kind of move him out of history. Um, and kind of apply this to your own life. I mean, I think that's a, a compelling aspect of Carlisle's. But at the same time, when you get that preacherly voice coming at you, I mean, there are things that make you make one uncomfortable in reading Carlisle about race, about social conditions, about democracy. So I guess after kind of Thomas Carlyle retailer, you know, what does the retailer in your, in your sense of things, where does it stand now? Is he somebody who we want to kind of look to as an interesting, compelling part of a historical moment, or do you find the kind of trans-historical voice that comes out of you off the page relevant, compelling? How does that fit? So I just wondered if you had a kind of sense of the state of the question, either that the volume presents or, or in your own understanding of the scholars. 
think we should both say something about that. Why don't you start? Okay. Um, that reminds me of a question that uh, Professor Dinah Birch from Oxford, who then uh, was at a Rutgers conference, posed when there was a panel of Carlisle scholars. She said, so what do we need to do? And the answer there that was given, I, th I still think it applies. We need to be able to remap at least, at the very least, the Victorian studies map. How, what is the role of Carlyle? It's, it's fascinating as you speak with some eminent Victorian scholars that Carlyle can be left out of the picture. They'll all acknowledge when addressed privately, didn't Carlyle play a role? And it, it is kind of the heart of your question. He, he was such a force at that point. What is it that causes him to drop out? One answer that people give is, is he relevant? You know, what, is he somebody who's surpassed? Even that kind of an answer, though, should force us to rethink how we then value historical periodizations, historical figures. Are they only important insofar as they mean something to us? Should history, should uh, anything that's looked at historically, literary history, be of value because it was there or because it has application? One of the things I've admired is how uh, Mary Lou, in her own teaching and in her own view of Carlyle, sees the applied ability, sees him being able to speak out to this point. And I guess being a historian, I tend to look backward and look at the past and say, we have to also understand what his actual position is. So when you open up, just say, a general undergraduate book on Victorian culture or history or literature, it's fascinating to be able to read through a book and to see maybe a, a, a very faint allusion or a scant footnote to, oh, and Carlyle existed then. But then when you hear the voices of the people at the particular time period, you see how, how important he was to them actually at that point. If I may, and I'm so sorry to digress like this, I see the, a similar phenomenon going on with Pope Pius XII. As a historian, I look at Pope Pius XII's uh, to me, rather striking actions during the Second World War, and how many people, including Golda Meir, after the war, praise Pope Pius XII's action in saving people of many faiths, and including Jews, and his concern for millions of Catholics in Europe, etc. And it's fascinating now to see people reread that history, almost, almost putting hands over ears and saying, well, they don't matter, the contemporary voice of the time. What matters is what we think now about the Catholic Church or how the Catholic Church has to pay some kind of a price and he'll be the person through whom that price might be paid. Do we do something similar with other historical figures? Do we do something similar with Carlyle? Does Carlyle, in a sense, become the scapegoat through which anything which seems not in line with liberal democracy is then foisted. I'm not sure, and I don't mean to press home, but I, I see a similar need historically to assess things historically, and then to be able to go from that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I've also get frustrated with when I mention I work on Carlisle, and someone's like, oh, oh, he's a fascist, right? <laughs> and, because, and then they say, yeah, and Hitler was reading him in the bunker. We all know he's a Nazi then too, right? So, and that type of thing where it's just people have, they have the kind of the sound bites about Carlyle. But having said that, yeah, there's some really ugly stuff that he wrote. Um, the occasional discourse on the Negro question is a really ugly, ugly piece. And it's, it was meant satirically. There was, when you read through it, you can see what he's doing, but it's, it's just nasty satire that's not, 
you know, it just it leaves a real bad taste in your mouth. And I, th I have to admit for myself, as, as a, a scholar of, of Carlyle, I tend to stop pretty much with past and present, 1843. Um, you know, that's, that's where, that's my cutoff for what I love best about him. Um, but, but Mike, in, in answer to your question, I mean, I come to him very personally. When I first read him in graduate school, uh, we read Sartor Vesartus, and I have to confess, I couldn't make head or tails of it, except the, the whole part about the everlasting nay and the everlasting yay. And I thought, oh my gosh, this guy's got something. I could live like this. I could, this, this could change my life to say yes, to, to be able to, to you know, find your work and do it. That, I, I can get behind that. And there have been times in my life I've gone back to that where I feel like, wow, yeah, I, this, is, this is where he's a prophet for a whole generation of people. And it's neat when I see my own students grooving on certain things. Um, Sartor has still been a tough sell, but, but doing past and present, where all of a sudden my business students are like, yeah, we could be these types of captains of industry. We could do this. We could be these kind of people. We could make a difference. I'm like, yeah, that's... I actually had a student, I don't, and I, I don't know if it hurt her chance for the Rhodes Scholarship, but she was um, doing an essay for the Rhodes Scholarship. Wonderful student, just so bright and so wonderful. And, and she actually quoted Carlisle because she was going to go for economics. And that that was this, you know, she wanted to be that kind of a person. I'm like, wow, that's so neat, you know. So, so do I think he's relevant? Yeah, I do. But it, it is, there are limitations to it, too. Um, you know, ultimately, I find there are times when I just have to stop reading them and do something else. Because it is a certain kind of voice. And when you've read enough by him you see his tricks you know you know you know what and we all do that right we all have our our, our literary kind of you know our bag of tricks that tricks that we pull out and he does too um, so he's he, he has his limitations but at his best um, I still think yeah I think he's got the power to, to change lives I really do so there I wear my heart on my sleeve on that one so maybe I could <laughs> just uh, add one other point another way that Carlisle can be used to help in the, uh, if you will, other areas of scholarship. Somebody that's, that's known to uh, Professor Tomko, uh, John Morrill, uh, professor of early modern history, has said, it's very difficult to think of the revival of Cromwell in, in uh, British studies, if you will, without Carlyle's own contribution, a, a very, he sees it as um, calculated contribution to be able to write on Cromwell and raise this up. So at a point when the British monarchy is reaching its zenith, as, as the empire is strongest, you then have a reminder of Cromwell and all Cromwell stands for. In some ways, Nicholas Boyle comes back to this in his latest book, 2014, saying what changes in, in Britain. It's when Britain becomes imperial, when it leaves its status as Mary's dowry and some suddenly catapults into worldwide status. So. Carlyle can help in that regard. She mentioned Carlyle and the arts and craft movement. One of the other things that's fascinating to look at is a lot of the young socialist utopians, even the early communists, not, not the 20th century, but, but earlier, so the earlier followers of Marx, I should say, are really, you, ha you see him on working men's bookshelves. When I say working men's, these were the societies that were set up to provide books for labor. Why is Carlyle there? So being read in these various contexts, until we come to grips with that, we don't really have the historical understanding of the importance of Carlyle as a historical figure. Other questions? Well, I'm gonna, it's 10 after five, so thank you very much for thank you. coming. We're thank you. happy to have you here. 
This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.